Hello and welcome to Research Roundup, brought to you by the Primary Care Collaborative Cancer Clinical Trials Group, PC4. I'm Christy Milley, and each month, Sophie Schema and I will be looking at what's new in the world of cancer in primary care research. This month we're discussing two new papers focused on colorectal cancer screening and we're lucky enough to have one of the lead authors from the CRISP project in the studio with us, Dr Jennifer Walker. The articles from today's show can be found in our show notes on pc4tg.com.au forward slash podcasts. Thanks for joining us in the studio today, Jenny. Thank you. Uh, Dr Walker is a Senior Research Fellow and Deputy Lead in the Cancer Prevention in Primary Care Research Group at the University of Melbourne. Their publication... The use of a risk assessment and decision support tool, CRISP, compared with usual care in general practice to increase risk-stratified colorectal cancer screening. Study protocol for a randomised control trial, and this was published in trials this month. It's also one of the longest titles I think I've ever read, Jenny. Yes, maybe change it. (laughs) So Jenny, could you tell us a little more about this CRISP tool and why risk stratification is really important in bowel cancer screening. Okay, so we've developed a tool called CRISP, Colorectal Cancer Risk Prediction Tool. And what it does is actually stratify general practice patients into being at average risk or at increased risk according to their age, their BMI, their lifestyle, their family history, and a few other factors as well. And once they actually are stratified into being either average risk or increased risk, then they can actually have advice to have what we would call risk-appropriate screening. We say average risk or increased risk because these are people who are aged 50 to 74, so they're all at considered to be average risk and, and actually in need of screening. And in Australia, we do have a... National Bowel Cancer Screening Program, which sends everybody a faecal occult blood test kit, which is known as the poo test, to actually test their own poo, send a sample back in the post, and if that's positive, then they get sent off for colonoscopy. The current guidelines do suggest that you are, if you are at average risk and over 50, then you should be doing this poo test. But if you are at increased risk, you are meant to be having a colonoscopy. We are actually having a bit of an issue with not many people sending back the poo test. So irrespective of their risk, everybody gets sent it from the age of 50 to 74, and only 40% of 50-year-olds actually return the kids. But there are a lot of people who are actually having colonoscopies probably quite unnecessarily when they could just actually do the poo test and reduce their risk of having complications associated with the colonoscopy. What are some of those risks that would be associated with having a colonoscopy? Well, there's always risks associated with having even a mild anaesthetic, so that's one problem. Even just things like taking two days off work because you have to have a pretty powerful bowel evacuation and some people react badly to that. So the risks of colonoscopy include the potential for the fibre optic cable to actually pierce the bowel wall, in which case that can be quite life-threatening and at least require extra surgery. Or the other option is that people can actually bleed. Death is also considered a side effect of colonoscopy, although that is quite a rare event. And the actual side effects of having the faecal occult blood test are virtually nil, unless, of course, you actually go on to have a colonoscopy. 
Our second publication was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, reports on STOP CRC or STOP colorectal cancer, a US-based cluster randomised controlled trial investigating the effectiveness of an electronic health record embedded intervention, and this was a mailed faecal occult blood test. Uh, It was an outreach program that was implemented in health centres as part of standard care. This was a stepwise cluster RCT that recruited 26 clinics with over 40,000 patients. Their intervention identified adults due for screening, and these were added to an automatically generated mailing list by their clinic staff. Patients were sent an introductory letter, as well as the fit kit and a reminder letter. Their primary outcome was looking at clinic-level proportion of eligible adults who completed the fit test within 12 months. Additionally, they also looked at clinic-level proportions of eligible adults who completed any colorectal cancer screening. So this included the FOBT test, sigmoidoscopy or colonoscopy. Unlike the USA, Australia, as Jenny mentioned, does have a national bowel cancer screening program. So I'm interested, Jenny, if you think that this primary care approach, as we see in the STOP CRC trial, is something that could be implemented or adopted in Australia. Good question. So... This is not unlike the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program, which sends out the FOBT kits, sends out a letter to people before they actually get the kit, explaining what it is and to expect it, and then sends out a kit to be self-completed at home and then sends out a reminder. The big difference, of course, is that this is done through primary care, and there's a lot of evidence to show that if a test is endorsed by your primary care clinician, then people are much more likely to do it. It's an idea to have something like this as a supplemental intervention, but we've actually decided to actually use a tool like the CRISP tool instead of just doing something that is is a lot more non-specific. So the idea is with something like the CRISP tool, we can actually stratify people and capture those people who are at increased risk as well, apart from just doing a broad brush population-based non-targeted screening, which is really just these people have just targeted anybody who hasn't had any screening in the last 12 months or two years, I think it is, 12 months, in which case it will capture people with the FOBT, but it won't stratify them by risk, which is what we think is important with our particular study. Okay. So in this paper as well, they found that their intervention significantly improved the test completion, so the number of people that completed the screening test, by around uh, 3.4%. But they also found that there was kind of that broad blanket increased any kind of colorectal cancer screening. So given that, as you've just said, you know, the the CRISP trial really focuses on appropriate screening, Mm. uh, what kind of considerations do we need to take into account when we're looking at that just generalised increase uptake of CRC screening? Well, it was probably particularly relevant in this study because this was these were clinics in the US with people who were actually probably at more risk and they were certainly lower socioeconomic areas as well. So I think actually having an intervention that's targeted to people who are probably missing out on screening is probably very beneficial in that way. There is always this balance between population-based or generalised screening and targeted screening or risk-stratified screening. With population-based screening, the idea is that if you actually sort of get most of the people, then that's actually going to be quite beneficial. And considering not a huge proportion of the population are at increased risk, then you will actually sort of capture most of the most of the people who are at risk of developing colorectal cancer. You will capture a lot of it. 
So and the FOBT test isn't a bad test. It's yeah. quite a good test too. And the intervention was also embedded in their electronic health record. Oh, yes, that's a really important yeah. point. So do you see CRISP maybe ultimately being embedded in practice software? Is that possible? Yes, absolutely. So this is... In Australia, we have multiple different software systems within general practice. So it's difficult to get one intervention put into everybody's health records systems. Certainly, more and more, the different companies are coming together and it's be- they're becoming more aligned. But we've actually made our tool web-based so that irrespective of the type of health software that you have or patient management software that you have, you can access it. Certainly, it's something that the GPs say that they would like. And we actually develop a PDF report that they can attach to any medical record. But the actual auditing process isn't, uh, isn't uh, we haven't done that at this stage because we're assessing people individually as they come in. Okay. And lastly, I was interested again in this paper that they talked about some of those barriers with implementing an intervention like this. Hmm. So given that you have a lot of implementation experience, Jenny, what are those barriers that are holding back tools like CRISP or like Stop CSE from being in- implemented successfully? That's a really good question, and it's it's kind of the million-dollar question that everybody asks. I think one thing that's really interesting in this paper is when you look at their measure of implementation, which was sending out the fit kits, there was a huge range of implementation success from 6.5% to 68.5%. A so very big variation in implementation, and even effectiveness was negative 7.4% to 17.6%. So one of the biggest barriers to implementation in both the US and Australia, really very commonly in Australia, is this heterogeneity of, of general practice. So we often use an implementation science framework called normalisation process theory. And the argument is that change in practice really requires four main things. This is NPT in a real little nutshell. But the first thing we would say is is if something is going to be embedded in general practice, the GPs particularly need to understand it and they, they need to sort of intellectually understand that this is actually something that's worthwhile. It makes sense to them. It's part of their remit in what they do in clinical practice. The second thing is they need to have some kind of buy-in, so it needs to be something that value adds to what they do, and they need to have a way of sort of a hook to sort of get them involved in it. The third thing is it does, it really needs to sit in the, fit into their current clinical system. So this means within the patient-doctor dynamic, within the clinic structure itself, within the health system itself. So for example, to suddenly implement or the FOBT test, if there's suddenly none available at all, then they obviously can't use it or if they can't access colonoscopy for people who test positive. So that's a really big one. And the fourth thing that NPT talks about is that for sustainability of an intervention, once they're over the initial excitement and enthusiasm <laughs> about having CRISP in their clinics or the STOP CRC in their clinics, there has to be a way that they can actually monitor their success or feedback. You know, there are ideas about how it might change. So there has to be something that makes it sustainable and adaptable to change too. So that's a very general way of looking at it. And there's obviously lots of very specific barriers to implementing things that fit into a lot of those different 
constructs as well. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer Walker, so much for coming in today and chatting with us. And I look forward to being able to hopefully talk to you again soon when we can hear more about the results of the CRISP trial. Thank you, Christy. It's been lovely. Thanks for downloading Research Roundup, produced by PC4. You can access the articles and other information in our show notes. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing info at pc4tg.com.au or keep in touch via Twitter, where you'll find us at PC4TG. Don't forget to visit PC4's website, pc4tg.com.au.